Hello everyone, my name is Nancy Porter and I am happy to share Time Magazine with you on this broadcast from Ayers LA. I need to remind you that you're listening to a recording provided for the use of the blind and print impaired. Materials or items read on Ayers LA are the copyright property of the original author and publishers and no unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. We'll begin with the article from the Editor-in-Chief, Sam Jacobs, from the July 3rd issue of Time magazine. The moment is now. We've seen how quickly the role business plays in our lives can change. Not long before we launched the first Time 100 companies list in 2021, Jensen Huang told us, AI is a watershed moment for the world. And that moment has now arrived. Recently, Huang's company, NVIDIA, which makes the hardware powering this this revolution, was valued at over $1 trillion. This year's list, which again includes NVIDIA, shows the power of this vision. Accomplishments in artificial intelligence earned spots for more than a dozen companies, up from five a year ago. Perhaps most visible among them is OpenAI and its CEO, Sam Altman. Their chat GPT program has rocketed in popularity, hitting 100 million active users in two months. It took Instagram two and a half years to get there. Times former editor-in-chief Edward Felenstahl visited Altman and his colleagues in San Francisco in May. We found Altman uncertain about what's next describing himself as both very optimistic and prepared for things to go super wrong at any point. As Edward and Billy Perigio write, OpenAI's impact may be measured not just in users, but also in how the company and its rivals shape the future. To create Time 100 companies, our editors, led by Emma Barker, seek nominations from our global network of contributors and correspondents, as well as from outside source experts. Then we evaluate each on key factors, including impact, innovation, ambition, and success. The result is a diverse group of businesses helping chart an essential path forward. Since we began this effort, we've seen how quickly the role business plays in our lives, how it can change. We launched this franchise following the first year of a pandemic that transformed how many people viewed their jobs, their offices, and work entirely. Company leaders were thinking in new ways about what they owed their employees, what they owed society, and what they owed the planet. These shifts accelerated our interest in hosting regular conversations with the people shaping the world's most influential companies. Our weekly newsletter, titled The Leadership Brief, interviews with individuals who lead top global organizations, has built a community of subscribers that includes more than 500,000 people on LinkedIn. To expand on those conversations, we recently launched the Times CO2 Leadership Report, in which Justin Warland explores the overlapping worlds of business and climate. That intersection is growing more crowded and consequential. Compared with last year, twice as many of this year's Time 100 companies are leaders in sustainability and climate action.
This week happens to mark my 10th year at Time. That anniversary arriving at the same time as Time 100 companies reminds me how businesses don't change just the world, but also the people who work at them. A lot, a lot has evolved in the past 10 years, and even more across Time's 100-year history. Fortunately, much has stayed the same. Our legacy is our strength, and like many of the companies on this year's list, we're excited to be building on it. And that again was Editor-in-Chief Sam Jacobs. Alright, moving on to our next article. Making the Case by Brian Bennett. To take Donald Trump to trial, bringing charges over his handling of classified documents is only the first challenge. Bringing historic federal charges against Donald Trump was just the start. The challenge for De Justice Department Special Counsel Jack Smith, as he prepares to argue in court that the former president illegally took national defense secrets to his Florida home and then defied efforts to get them back, is to make the charges stick. The 37-count indictment handed down by a Miami grand jury on June 8th uses photographs, text messages, and the words of Donald Trump's own lawyer to allege he stored some of the United States' most closely held secrets, including information about its nuclear programs, defense vulnerabilities, and attack plans in a Mar-a-Lago club ballroom, a bathroom and shower, his bedroom, an office, and a storage room, and then allegedly obstructed federal officials seeking their return. The charges that Trump denied at his arraignment in a Miami courtroom five days later included not only willful retention of national defense information, but also conspiracy to obstruct justice, concealing documents from a federal investigation, and making false statements. However formidable his evidence, Smith, a taciturn career prosecutor with a medieval-looking beard, faces substantial obstacles. The case was assigned to a federal judge who has already been chided by an upper court for inappropriately favoring Trump. Nearly everyone in the country has an opinion about Donald Trump. Jurors will be selected from a state he won in 2016 and 2020, and it takes only one holdout to bring a mistrial. And Trump is using his indictment to stir up crowds and raise money for his presidential campaign. The Southern District of Florida is known for presiding over a rocket docket that moves cases quickly. But Trump has spent decades stalling legal challenges and could try to push a verdict out past election day. Regardless of how long the legal process takes, neither indictment nor conviction would bar him from being elected. With the integrity of the U.S. justice system, and possibly the outcome of a presidential election, hanging in the balance, a lengthy trial in a high-profile case is exactly what the Justice Department does not want. Smith has spent nearly his entire career prosecuting. After graduating from Harvard Law School, 
He worked for the Manhattan District Attorney's Office, then the U.S. Attorney in Brooklyn, and worked his way up through the Justice Department to lead the unit that brings cases against public officials accused of corruption. After a stint in the U.S. Attorney's Office in Nashville, he tolerated only a year litigating for the private hospital corporation of America before moving to The Hague, where he charged war criminals for the Kosovo Special Prosecutor's Office. That's where Attorney General Merrick Garland found Smith when he needed an independent special counsel to oversee not only the classified document case, but also the Department of Justice investigation into whether Trump tried to reverse the 2020 election or encourage the January 6th storming of the Capitol. The number one challenge on Smith's mind, says Renato Mariotti, a former federal prosecutor, has to be that the case will be presided over by Aileen Cannon, a Trump appointee whose intervention on his behalf after the FBI search of Mar-a-Lago was reversed by the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals because it created an unprecedented exception for the former president. A district judge like Cannon has very significant power at trial, says Mariotti, For example, prosecutors would not be able to appeal if she decided to throw the case out after the jury was impaneled. Should Trump be convicted, she would determine his sentence. She can influence the terms of jury selection and their instructions, as well as the trial's date and how long it takes. So the independence of the judiciary is also being watched closely as is the calendar. The GOP selects a presidential nominee in just over 13 months. Even a run-of-the-mill federal case often takes a year at trial. In a case involving national security documents, the process often takes even longer. Trump may try to make this a complicated, intricate, self-justifying, confusing case. Smith needs to keep it simple, says Norm Eisen, former special counsel to the House Judiciary Committee during Trump's first impeachment. This is about a president who jeopardized our national security by removing documents that were classified national defense information and extremely dangerous, and when he was caught, he covered it up. Then there's the court of public opinion. Trump's preferred battlefield. The candidate has already tried to define Smith as deranged, a thug, and a Trump hater. That may influence his faithful, but it is unlikely to make a dent in the prosecutor, Eisen says. Jack Smith has tried war criminals who have committed mass atrocities, so I don't think he's going to be taunted by the name-calling from Trump. All right, article number three. China's college graduate and its economy have a problem, said Charlie Campbell. China faces twin economic crises, an aging population and young people 
who are expected to support them, but can't find work. By 2035, around 400 million Chinese, or some 30% of the population, will be age 60 or older, and the ratio of workers to dependents grows ever more unfavorable as an estimated 228 million members of China's own baby boom generation will retire over the decade. Last year, China had a 2.26 working age peoples supporting each senior. That's forecast to drop to 1.25 by the year 2042. The youth problem. Youth unemployment in China hit a record high in April, with 20.4% of 16 to 24-year-old job seekers unable to find work. Some 11.6 million students are set to graduate in June, entering a labor market that looks increasingly bleak. Youth unemployment is a more pressing issue than the aging population, says Keiju Jin, an associate professor at the London School of Economics. Service jobs. Raising retirement ages is one real, if controversial, option. But for new graduates, the most acute problem is that the available jobs are beneath them. China suffers from a skills mismatch. Factories have faced worker shortages, while graduates are bereft of opportunities commensurate with their proficiency. The Chinese government is pivoting toward vocational training and expanding the service sector, which accounts for less than half of jobs in China, compared with roughly 80% in Japan and the United States. Graduates will have to lower their standards and work in sectors that they wouldn't necessarily have aspired to, says Jane Golly, an expert on Chinese economics at the Australian National University. The economic outlook is especially problematic because young people in China account for nearly 20% of consumption, according to a Goldman Sachs analyst, meaning youth joblessness disproportionately impacts growth targets and the nation's coffers. The grim economic outlook has already prompted local governments to slash social services, sparking rare public protests earlier this year. All right, moving on to article number four. Inside the Very Online Campaign of RFK Jr. by Vera Bergensgruen in Los Angeles. Running for vice president makes it much more difficult for people to censor me, he says. Bobby Kennedy Jr. is still talking, up in the hills of Los Angeles, in a house studded with family memorabilia. The scion of the Kennedy clan and Democratic presidential candidate has been expounding for 90 minutes on everything from Latin American populism to the CIA, from cryptocurrency to the war in Ukraine. His phone is pinging with messages from politicians and Twitter celebrities, and he needs to jump on a flight to Las Vegas where he'll address a tech convention. But Kennedy waves off his wife, actor Cheryl Hines, as she pops into the living room to remind him he still needs to pack. 
He wants to talk about how people are finally listening to him. I am constantly surprised by it, Kennedy says, of the attention to his long-shot campaign. It's just very weird. Weird is one word for Kennedy's bid, which has won support from figures as disparate as Twitter founder Jack Dorsey, quarterback Aaron Rodgers, actor Alicia Silverstone, and conspiracy theorist Alex Jones. It's a guerrilla operation staffed by longtime friends and colleagues from Kennedy's many previous lives. As an environmental lawyer, prolific author, master falconer, Hollywood husband, and anti-vaccine crusader. So far, the candidate has spent more time chatting on podcasts and live stream than visiting with voters. Instead of dropping in on New Hampshire coffee shops, he's given a speech at a Miami Bitcoin conference, appeared on Twitter spaces with Elon Musk, and is slated to be interviewed on June 14th on Joe Rogan's wildly popular podcast. More striking than the medium is the message, a kind of make America great again for Democrats that stands in stark contrast to the optimism that defined the campaigns of his father and uncle. Kennedy sounds simultaneously stuck in the past and jarringly online, his worldview dark and suspicious. He speaks about a time when the country's waters were not polluted. Pharmaceutical companies did not poison children. Bioweapons did not threaten to destroy humanity. And people trusted the government not to lie or to silence them. I feel like my country is being taken away from me, he tells Time magazine. I want to restore in many ways the America of my youth, the America I was raised in. It may be dismissed as a vanity project, but Kennedy is tapping into something. Up to 20% of Democrats pick him in early presidential primary polls, and many more say they would consider supporting him. Some of this may be the enduring draw of his name, but the issues he has invaded for ages have attracted an unlikely coalition of true believers, cynical right-wing personalities, and contrarian tech brothers. Kennedy's most eager cheerleaders have been on the right, where he built a following through his opposition to COVID-19 mandates. Fox News has aired dozens of segments about him, including a full-length documentary. A lot of people who are supporting me do not agree with me on every issue, he says, which is fine with Kennedy. He's desperate to talk to the American public, and he's out there doing it every day, going on every platform that will let him on, says Tony Lyons, his friend and publisher, who is now working on a super PAC backing his campaign. I think he really believes that this is his moment, and that the American people are actually ready for it. Robert F. Kennedy Jr., now age 69, is the fifth member of the Kennedy clan to run for president, and his campaign has sought to capitalize with a heavy dose of 1960s nostalgia from vintage signs to constant references to my uncle and my father. Watching him hold forth with a cup of tea in his living room, his three dogs playing by his feet, 
feels like looking through a funhouse mirror at a figure both familiar as well as distorted. He is a vision of what his father might have looked like had he been allowed to grow old. With the same rolled up sleeves, sharp blue eyes, and weathered tan. His speeches are delivered in a voice strained by spasmodic dysphonia, a vocal disorder that came on suddenly when he was 42, and which he has suggested is a side effect of the flu vaccine. While he usually goes by Bobby like his father, his campaign decided to go with the more formal Robert. In a corner of the living room, there's a picture of his father, beaming in a bright red snowsuit on a framed 1965 cover of Life magazine, celebrating his summit of a Canadian peak, which was rechristened Mount Kennedy. Across the room hangs his dad's voter registration card. A bronze bust of his uncle, President John F. Kennedy, keeps watch from a console. Enlarged black and white photo on a wall shows seven-year-old Bobby Jr. in the Oval Office in 1961. Kennedy's life has been defined by these two men, their violent deaths and the legacy they bequeathed. The third of Robert and Ethel Kennedy's 11 children, Bobby Jr. was nine when his uncle was assassinated in Dallas and aged 14 when his father was fatally shot in the kitchen of a Los Angeles hotel in 1968. I hate to use the words golden boy or chosen one, said Dick Russell, a longtime colleague who just published a biography titled The Real RFK Jr. Trials of a Truth Warrior. But he was the one in the family who was kind of looked to as the one to carry on that mantle. After his father was killed, Kennedy struggled to be a grown-up, as he puts it. He was kicked out of boarding schools and busted for marijuana possession, though he still attended Harvard. He failed the bar exam and struggled with addiction. In the early 1980s, after being charged with heroin possession, he entered a drug rehab facility. While volunteering for an environmental nonprofit during his probation period, he found the cause to which he would dedicate much of his life. Kennedy threw himself into environmental law, fighting to clean up the Hudson River and prosecute polluters. He created a legal clinic at New York's Pace University that enlisted law students to work on environmental cases, which became a model for projects around the country, and received accolades for his work focused on indigenous communities. A 1995 cover of the New York magazine hailed him as the Kennedy who matters. <clears throat> he turned down opportunities to run for office, saying he needed to focus on his six children. He continued to sue corporations he saw as polluting for profit, coal, oil, pesticides. Then, in the 2000s, he turned his attention to vaccines after being contacted by parents who claimed their children had been injured by them. Kennedy went down a wormhole, as he put it to his biographer. He reconsidered his son's peanut allergies and his experience as a summer camp counselor. I never saw anybody with autism, he says. Over time, perceptions of Kennedy shifted from widely respected environmental crusader 
to conspiratorial outcast. He joined a struggling nonprofit called the World Mercury Project in 2016 and rebranded it as Children's Health Defense, which became one of the country's largest anti-vaccination advocacy groups. It falsely claims that a variety of childhood illnesses are being caused by the ingredients in vaccines, as well as fluoride and acetaminophen and 5G wireless technology. Kennedy gave speeches, wrote articles, and produced videos claiming that vaccines were making our children dumber and giving them injuries. He saw the ensuing criticism from scientists and public health agencies as confirmation that he was right. Pharmaceutical companies were pushing harmful substances on children, he argued, and U.S. regulators were lying about it in the same way they had about river pollution. Invitations for interviews and public speeches dried up. Once I started talking about vaccines, they didn't just censor me on vaccines. They censored me on everything, he said. In 2009, the Obama administration reportedly briefly considered him for an EPA appointment, but decided it would be too controversial. In 2016, he met with the Trump administration about a post on a vaccine commission, which also did not materialize. Kennedy became more vocal about other theories, that the 2004 election had been stolen, that the CIA had killed his father, that 5G has been set up to harvest our data and control our behavior. In 2019, three members of the Kennedy family published an op-ed in which they said that while they loved him, he was tragically wrong about vaccines and part of a misinformation campaign that is having heartbreaking and deadly consequences. The COVID-19 pandemic brought a new audience for Kennedy's fringe views. He gained a following in online right-wing groups the Children's Health Defense Fund's revenue doubled to $6.8 million in 2020, and then again to $16 million in 2021. That year, Kennedy published a book titled The Real Anthony Fauci, in which he accuses the top U.S. infectious disease doctor of orchestrating a historic coup d'etat against Western democracy. It sold more than a million copies. In January of 2022, Kennedy was a prominent speaker at a rally at the Lincoln Memorial. Addressing a predominantly right-wing crowd of thousands, he denounced COVID-19 health measures and invoked Anne Frank to suggest that unvaccinated Americans have less freedom than the Jews did during the Holocaust. He later apologized. It had taken decades, but Kennedy realized he finally had an audience for the causes that friends he genuinely believes in and has championed at great personal sacrifice. That was the first time I seriously thought about running for president, he says. Kennedy says Hines jokes, she'll deal with the campaign by going to the Bahamas and inventing a new kind of margarita that has Xanax in it. At this point, he is used to his views making family members uneasy. There's nothing I can really do about it, he says. 
if I was worried about people not having an accurate view of me, I'd be in a state of anxiety all the time. Kennedy was 50 minutes into an almost two-hour speech announcing his candidacy on April 19th when he first seemed to pause and take a breath. I want to move on to another issue that nobody's really going to want to talk about, but I need to, he said from the stage of a Boston hotel, having just finished a diatribe about coal companies. This is what happens when you censor somebody for 18 years. I got a lot to talk about. But he did not mention the vaccine issue that has come to define him. Instead, railing against corporate control of politics, government, and the media. He also played up his lineage, mentioning his father and uncle more than 30 times. Kennedy insists his campaign is a continuation of their legacy. We have a growing number of liberals who are trying to find their way back to their roots, to Kennedy liberalism, he says and I represent that better than anybody. Along the way, he intends to court Republicans and independents. These people who are supporting me, many of them would otherwise be supporting Donald Trump, he says. It's the same way when my dad died. Many of the whites who supported him went over to George Wallace, who was a rabid segregationist. He adds what his father might try to do And what I will try to do is to appeal to those people, but a different side of them. Kennedy has long moved comfortably between political spheres. He filmed a nature documentary with Roger Ailes in the 1970s, campaigned for Hillary Clinton in 2000, and flew his family on Trump's private jet. Not a great guy at all, Kennedy says. During the pandemic, he met with Florida Governor Ron DeSantis to discuss COVID-19 restrictions. He also considers Joe Biden a close family friend for 40 years. The conservative Silicon Valley investor David Sachs is co-hosting a $10,000 per ticket dinner for Kennedy. Bobby is the real deal, says John Gilmore, who worked with Kennedy on the Children's Health Defense Fund and now runs his super PAC, American Values, in 2024, which has so far raised close to $6 million. He's been pilloried in the press. He's lost jobs. He's been pushed out of organizations. He gets trashed sometimes by members of his own family. So he's not a poser, to say the least. The super PAC has taken out ads in newspapers promising that Kennedy will take back your country, but is still figuring out how to use social media to promote a candidate who has been deplatformed in the past for spreading medical misinformation. Instagram only recently reinstated his account because he is now an active candidate for President of the United States, according to a spokesman. Running for President makes it much more difficult for people to censor me, he says. The strategy that allies have landed on is to focus on podcasts and alternative media. Kennedy believes the 2024 election could be decided by podcasts, and he intends to use them to full advantage. 
In the same way that my uncle sort of realized that television was a good medium for him in 1960, and Trump discovered that he could communicate with these large groups of people on Twitter in 2016, Kennedy says, I think podcasts are a good medium for me. In the past few weeks, Kennedy has appeared on dozens of podcasts and online shows, holding conversations with actor Russell Brand, right-wing commentator Jordan Peterson, right-wing activist James O'Keefe, and Elon Musk. I'll talk to anybody, he says. Although he recently did cross two names off that list, Steve Bannon and Jones. My marriage could not survive, Kennedy says. She would kill me. Figures on the right are especially attracted to Kennedy's Jeremiads against what he sees as an increasingly authoritarian government and his criticism of U.S. support for Ukraine in its war against Russia, which he calls a setup by the neocons and the CIA. Whether he's talking about Ukraine, the economy, health care, or technology, Kennedy speaks in numbers and statistics. His book on Fauci had 2,194 footnotes. People are attracted to the depth of his intellect, says his campaign manager, Dennis Kuchinich, the former Ohio Democrat who has his own experience as a long-shot presidential candidate. There is no artifice about him at all, and he really has touched something that transcends ordinary politics. Health experts have a different take. Kennedy's style of promoting anti-vaccine disinformation is effective because it's portrayed to the public with graphs and figures and what appears to be scientific data. He has perfected the art of illusion as fact, says Michael Osterholm, the director of the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy at the University of Minnesota. It would be one thing if it were merely about a point of politics, but this is about people's lives. And the consequences of promoting this kind of disinformation, as credible as it may seem, is simply dangerous. So far, Kennedy has held only a handful of in-person events. Most of his campaign is online where hashtag Kennedy 2024 has grown into one of the most confusing hashtags on the internet. At 2 a.m. on June 6th, he posted a video of himself at the southern border in Arizona, criticizing Biden's immigration policies. He has a TikTok account where he offers glimpses of his life or views on assorted topics. One video instructed viewers on how to catch crabs on the beach. He's been following the advice of Tinder founder Sean Radd, who Kennedy says has been advising his campaign, and his daughter-in-law Amaryllis Fox, an author and former CIA agent who has been running his digital strategy. She said with TikTok you want to put sort of unexpurgated, very raw footage, Kennedy says. The candidate seems to be basking in a sense of destiny. I've studied certain realignments that have occurred throughout American history, he says, and I think that's happening now. His vision is the unification of left and right in a populist movement, he says. 
that would be unstoppable, right? In the end, Kennedy's long-shot candidacy may say more about the state of America in 2023 than it does about the man himself. What matters in the end isn't whether people support his campaign, he says. It matters that they are listening. All right, let's move on to another article. Inside, no, um, Health Matters by Jeffrey Kluger, editor-at-large. A new study reveals how much and how early companies knew about potential harms of PFAs. In 2023, it's hard to get away from breaking news about PFAs, a class of more than 12,000 chemicals used in countless products from nonstick pan to cosmetics to food packaging. These so-called forever chemicals have been linked to a host of physical ills, including increased risk of certain cancers, high cholesterol, hormonal disruption, immune system problems, decreased fertility, and developmental delays in children. PFAs, first developed in the 1940s, weren't always so well known by people outside of the industries manufacturing them. But a new study analyzing industry documents published in Annals of Global Health reveals just how much and how early the two biggest manufacturers of the chemicals, 3M and DuPont, knew about the potential harms the products posed. As the researchers found, 3M and DuPont had preliminary evidence of PFA's toxicity as early as the 1960s, and knew broadly about the dangers the chemical posed by 1970, two decades before the public really became aware of the chemical's health risks. The study also reveals that the tactics the company used to cover up what they knew about the toxicity of PFAs, suppressing unfavorable research, distorting public disclosure of research that did leak out, withholding information from employees who might have been exposed to dangerous levels of PFAs, are reminiscent of those used by the tobacco and fossil fuel industries. Having access to these documents allows us to see what the manufacturers knew and when, but also how polluting industries keep critical public health information private, said Dr. Nadia Gaber, an emergency medical resident and the first author of the paper in a statement. This research is important to inform policy and move us towards a precautionary rather than a reactionary principle of chemical regulation. In an email to Time, DuPont said, in part, in 2019, DuPont and Nemours was established as a new multi-industrial specialty products company. DuPont de Nemours has never manufactured PFOAs or PFOs, two types of PFAs. DuPont de Nemours cannot comment on allegations contained in the USF paper that relates to historical matters. 3M emailed a comment as well, 
stating, the paper is largely comprised of previously published documents, as evidenced by the paper's references section, which includes citations dating back as far as 1962. 3M has previously addressed many of the mischaracterizations of these documents in previous reporting. The secrets begin. It was in 1961 that the dissembling around the dangers of PFAs started, according to the study. That year, the Canadian Medical Association Journal published a report of workers in PFAs factories who fell ill after smoking cigarettes that had been contaminated with PFAS-based Teflon. Shortly after, an account surfaced of a worker on a U.S. Air Force base who somehow came into possession of a similarly contaminated cigarette, smoked it, and died immediately on site. The DuPont and Air Force dismissed the account as a rumor, and the author of the original Canadian paper, apparently bowing to industry and military pressure, posted a retraction, saying in part, all rumors of death are false. But the researchers say DuPont knew better. In 1961, a DuPont study found Teflon exposure led to liver enlargement in rats, with the in-house scientist recommending contact with the skin should be strictly avoided. In 1962, a company scientist concealed internally that Teflon may be reactive to excessive heat and handling. And in 1970, researchers at a West Virginia DuPont plant found PFAS chemicals could be highly toxic when inhaled and moderately toxic when ingested. None of those findings were ever made public. Among the human studies the companies conducted, researchers found a possible increase in prostate cancers had been reported among employees at one manufacturing plant. Other findings showed elevated liver enzymes in 61% of 30 workers tested, indicating inflammation and damage to cells in the liver. Working the public. As the evidence of dangers mounted, the authors say, 3M and DuPont began covering up what they knew. In 1991, researchers unaffiliated with the companies began detecting PFAS in groundwater. The companies responded with a joint press release stating that internal studies showed the chemicals had no known toxic or ill health effects in humans at concentration levels detected. In 2000, health officials in Lubeck, West Virginia, detected several forms of PFAS in drinking water. In response, DuPont assured the officials that all was well. The officials repeated the company line, stating, DuPont reports that it has toxicological and epidemiological data to support confidence that exposure guidelines established by DuPont are protective of human health. But by now, the genie was out of the bottle. Researchers unaffiliated with the companies were publishing more and more studies on the risk of PFAS, 
linking it to increased risk of certain cancers and other ills. One lawsuit had already been adjudicated, and a second case was coming. And in 2000, 3M even announced it would no longer be manufacturing the PFAS-based fabric-protecting Scotchgarden. Last year, the EPA set permissible levels for PFOA and PFOS in drinking water, and it is working to do the same with six more types by 2026. Public demand is leading to a growing market for PFAS-free products, leaving companies like DuPont and 3M either to abandon, or at least curb, the chemicals or get left behind. As for the company's reputations, studies like the just-released one might make for a difficult cleanup job there. All right, let's move on to the final article in the regular magazine section titled Captive Audio by Simon Schuster. On land Russia has held for most of a decade, the final battle will be for hearts and minds. One day last fall, Vladimir Zelensky, the president of Ukraine, came across a clip from Russian TV that had gone viral on social media. It showed one of Russia's most prominent talk show hosts for calling Ukrainian children to be killed, thrown in a river with a strong current, for speaking out against the Russian occupation of their homeland. Even by the ugly standards of Russian warmongering, the statement seemed to cross a line, and the host soon lost his job over it. But it continued to trouble Zelensky. Their society accepts this, consumes it, he told me with evident disgust a few weeks later. They live in this paradigm. The Russian invasion of Ukraine was in its ninth month at that point, long enough to harden Zelensky to many of its horrors the bombardment of Ukrainian cities, the kidnapping of Ukrainian children, the torture and killing of civilians, all of which the president addressed in our interview with a defiant kind of stoicism. But the Kremlin's propaganda, and the hold it seems to have over many of its viewers, still got under the president's skin. It shocks me, he said, the force of this information, the information sickness. Not only in Russia, but also across the occupied regions of eastern and southern Ukraine, millions of people absorb the Kremlin line about Ukraine through Russian television. Its central message, like a genocidal fever dream mixed in among gardening shows and soap operas, depicts Ukraine's existence as a historical mistake. Its government, a cabal of Satanists and neo-Nazis intent on Russia's destruction. Zelensky, as the main villain in these narratives, does not believe their lack of subtlety makes them any less effective. And he has made it his mission not only to free Ukrainian land from Russian occupation, but also to liberate Ukrainians from what he calls the Russian information space. Since early June, when Ukraine began its biggest counteroffensive of the war, the armed forces have sought to prove their ability to shatter Russia's defensive lines and regain territory. 
But Zelensky, who sees himself as more of a communicator than a military strategist, worries about the political challenges to come, especially the need to win trust and support among people living in occupied lands. To reach them, he plans to use the same weapon that Russia has used to indoctrinate them. Ukraine needs to break through, Zelensky told me, with its channel of information as actively as possible. In regions occupied in early 2022, Russia has not been able to win much support. The residents of Kershaw in the south showed mass resistance to the occupation, staging rallies and standing in the way of enemy tanks. The Russians did not win in Kherson because, inside themselves, the people did not support Russia, Zelensky said. They held firm. But in other regions, the picture looks a lot more complicated. Crimea in the south and parts of the Donbass region in the east have been under Russia control for nine years, ever since Russian President Vladimir Putin first sent his forces to occupy them. With enough weapons from the West, Zelensky believes the military can evict the Russians from these regions, but he is far less certain about what comes next. People in the Donbas, they've been brainwashed, he told me. All they have, every single day, is the Russian information space. Nothing else exists there. So there is no hope the people there see Russia as the real occupier, he said. I can't reach them. He still intends to try, even if his struggle with Russia in the field of propaganda comes with serious risks, threatening to undermine the very freedoms that Ukraine is fighting to defend. Zelensky has already faced criticism over wartime censorship, and the government's plans to reintegrate Crimea and parts of the Donbas include tough methods, among them the forced expulsion of Russian civilians and what Ukrainian general calls carrots and sticks. The president, a former producer and star of Ukrainian sitcoms, sees television as his weapon of choice for winning over people in the occupied territories. I need to be able to speak with them all the time, he says, assuming they're still ready to listen. The battle for the airways has played out on Ukraine for nearly a decade, always in parallel to the clashes at the front. In eastern Ukraine, one of Russia's first conquests took place on April 7, 2014, when a group of heavily armed militants drove up to a TV tower on Karachin Hill. At the gates, they encountered two guards, a man and an elderly woman, along with a shaggy dog named Bim that looked too small for its doghouse. When I interviewed the guards a few days later, they told me the gunman went straight up to the tower's control, control room and asked the engineer to broadcast the frequency of Russia's main propaganda channel, Rosira. The engineer complied, just in time, to show Putin's annual call-in show which lasted around four hours that day. Seated at a desk in front of a studio audience in Moscow, Putin used the show to expound on his imperialist vision for Ukraine. 
He referred to eastern and southern Ukraine as Novorus Russia, a new Russia. And he argued that with the fall of the Soviet Union in 1991, these lands unfairly ended up outside of Moscow's control. God only knows why. From that point forward, Putin would use all means at his disposal, including even military power, he said, to protect the ethnic Russians living in these regions from their own government, which he described as a bunch of radical nationalists. Coming a month after the Russian annexation of Crimea, Putin's performance served as a warning that he could do the same thing with other regions of Ukraine. The government in Kiev, which had come to power in a revolution that winter, understood that Putin intended to use his TV networks to stir a separatist rebellion among ethnic Russians, and it tried to block access to those networks across the country. Throughout May of 2014, the Ukrainian military fought fierce battles for Karachin Hill that ended only after its TV tower was destroyed. It made little difference. By the middle of summer, Russian forces took control of two major cities in eastern Ukraine, Donetsk and Luhansk, along with their television towers. Let the people hear the truth, one of the separatist broadcast engineers, Pavel Mikhailov, told me as he configured the tower in Donetsk to show Russian propaganda that July. Let them understand that Ukraine has no future as a state. When Zelensky took office in 2019, he believed he could win support across eastern Ukraine, even in the regions that had been under Russian occupation for about five years by then. The cities of Donetsk and Luhansk had turned into separatist enclaves, ruled by a caste of Russian-backed warlords and spin doctors who were often assassinated and replaced with new appointees of the Kremlin. One separatist commander, known as Batman, was sprayed with bullets on a roadside in Luhansk. Another was blown up in a cafe. A third, nicknamed Motorola, was bombed in an apartment building. A fourth was incinerated with a flamethrower. The list continued. While Crimea survived on Russian tourism to its beaches, neither of the two separatist regions in eastern Ukraine had a functioning economy. International sanctions cut them off from any form of legal commerce with the world. Their leaders dealt in contraband, particularly the smuggling of weapons and coal, with some measure subsidies from Russia. No country in the world, not even Russia, recognized their independence. Yet, they were home to well over three million people. Reliable surveys of public opinion were hard to come by in these regions, the best polling available suggested that in the fall of 2019, just over half the people in the separatist parts of eastern Ukraine were not, in fact, separatists at all. They wanted to reintegrate with the rest of the country. Zelensky encouraged them. A native Russian speaker, he had spent most of his early career as a comedian touring stages and concert halls across Russia and Ukraine. Many people in Crimea and the Donbass grew up watching his movies and TV shows. As president, Zelensky promised to start paying pensions to people living under Russian occupation. 
Soon, new roads opened across the front line, making it easier for people in these regions to visit friends and family in other parts of Ukraine. People should cross over and see that it's better here, and slowly their opinions will change, Zelensky said. We need to bring them back and fight for them. But within a year of taking office, the president realized his message could not penetrate Russia's, Russia's monopoly on information in these regions. All major television networks in Ukraine were controlled by private media tycoons. Nearly all of them opposed Zelensky's government, and a few were allied with the Kremlin. In early 2021, Zelensky banned three of the channels that he accused of broadcasting Russia's propaganda in Ukraine. The move infuriated Putin, and European leaders criticized Zelensky for encroaching on the freedom of speech. But he saw no other way to curtail Russia's influence over his citizens. I think these channels killed a lot of people, he told me after banning them. Not directly, he said, but through false information. In February 22, with the start of a full-scale Russian invasion, Zelensky imposed martial law nationwide, which gave the state a powerful weapon in the information war. The airwaves in wartime are treated as critical infrastructure, and the authorities in Ukraine have the right to use them for national defense. Ukraine's biggest television networks quickly agreed to set aside their political agendas and show a unified message of resistance, falling in line behind Zelensky. The result became known as the Telemarathon, a round-the-clock broadcast of news and commentary that airs on all the major channels in Ukraine. Along with the latest updates on the fighting and essential advice on where to shelter, when to evacuate, and how to survive, the marathon carries Zelensky's message into every household in the land. Nothing like it has existed in Ukraine since the Soviet era, and critics have complained that it smacks of propaganda. A strict new media law, which came into force in March, also earned Zelensky criticism for expanding the state's ability to shut down news outlets, but he insists such measures are essential. The weapon of information is very important, he said last summer. It is also important to point this weapon, not only at one's own head, but in the direction of the enemy. For nearly a year, as Ukraine's armed forces have advanced in a series of counteroffensives, engineers have rushed to bring in the telemarathon to liberated towns and cities. The Russians have tried to block it. When they retreated from Kherson in November, Russian forces blew up the city's television tower, which fell in a heap of metal beams and antennas over a city park. The Ukrainians used a transmitter donated by Poland to restore the TV signal in Kherson. Two days later, the telemarathon showed Zelensky returning the national flag to the center of the city, where hundreds of people have gathered to celebrate their liberation. In other parts of Ukraine, that kind of welcome would be hard to imagine. After living for nine years on the Russian side of the front, many people in Crimea and the Donbass may not accept Ukraine as their home. The youngest among them have grown up under Russian control, watching the Kremlin's television channels. Thousands of young men in the separatist regions have been conscripted to fight against Ukraine. They are also dying, Zelensky says. And when their bodies come home, they are told, 
look what the Ukrainians have done. As Ukraine retakes these regions, village by village and town by town, we need to be ready, Zelensky says, for the fact that some of those people will not be happy to see us. Since last fall, when the military began advancing into Russian-occupied areas, the government in Kiev has developed plans for reintegrating the people living there. Kyrina Verenchuk, who heads the ministry in charge of this process, says the government has begun to train teams of civil servants, teachers and social workers who can sweep into these regions after they are liberated and, as she put it in a recent interview with El Pais, remake the state from scratch. The government expects many Ukrainians to move into liberated regions and help rebuild them once the Russians are expelled. Under Ukrainian law, anyone who collaborated with the occupiers must face prosecution in a period of transitional justice, which could take years. Ukraine estimates that over 600,000 Russians moved into Crimea in the years after its occupation. All of them will need to leave voluntarily or through forced expulsion. Anatoly Stelmak, the deputy minister for the reintegration of occupied territories, told a Ukrainian news outlet. Some officials in Kiev have suggested harsher methods to root out Russian sympathizers. In a TV interview this spring, Krylo Bundanov, the chief of the military intelligence service, said the influence of Russian propaganda has modified the psyches of people in occupied Crimea and eastern Ukraine. We have to re-educate those who can still be re-educated, he said, with the carrot and the stick. Zelensky takes a softer line, insisting he can convince people in the occupied regions without the use of force or coercion. The ones who abetted, who abetted the occupiers must face justice, he says. And under the laws against collaboration Zelensky signed last year, the penalties are stiff, up to 15 years in prison for the worst offenders. As for the rest of the people in these regions, Zelensky wants a chance to speak to them, if not in person through television, and to change their minds. We have to try, he says. We have to get closer, and the closer we get to Donetsk and Luhansk, the higher the chance they just might hear us. And that will conclude our Airs LA session for today. Again, I have to remind you that you've been listening to a recording provided for the use of the blind and print impaired. Materials or items read on Airs LA are the copyright property of the original authors and publishers, and no authorized use or duplication is permitted. Again, my name is Nancy Porter, and it has been my pleasure to share the June 3rd issue of Time Magazine with you.